This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Kate McClymont is an investigative journalist, best known for her series of articles and book about politician Eddie Obeid. Over her much-awarded career, she has expertly and courageously exposed the corruption of those in powerful positions, be they in politics, sport, trade unions or the media. We're going to start with your film, and you've chosen a Robert Redford film, not one that he acted in, but the first one that he directed... And like many people who are blessed, he just, this first film that he directed, he won the bloody Oscar for Best Director for it. But you've chosen uh, Ordinary People, 1980. Tell me why you chose that and the story behind it. Look, I think why I chose it was I absolutely love stories about the, the inner workings of people's lives because I think often... You know, there's always a veneer of respectability of, of, you know, people like to put on a show that their lives are, you know, near perfect or they're pretty happy. And this is a story about what happens in, you know, an upper class family in America when a tragedy besets them. Now, my brother drowned when I... Mm. Even now, even after all these years, you know, it's hard to explain to people how much a tragedy in a life really affects your family, the family dynamics, and has reverberations for years. So I think because my brother drowned, this film really um, like just encompassed so much of my own life and the aftermath of what happens. But it's still, I watch it every decade, and it is still just a brilliant, brilliant film and a quiet film. It did win, I think, four Oscars, and I think Robert Redford won the the um, I think it was best Oscar for um, direction for screenplay, and Timothy Hutton, who played the young boy in the family, he did as well. But the other thing was that Mary Tyler Moore, who was known as a comedian, she just plays the most brilliant role as the uptight mother, um, just not able to cope with the enormous change that has beset her family. And it's so sad. Now, in, in the film, the, the, the boy dies in a, in a drowning accident like your, yes. your brother and the, the family sort of disintegrates in the aftermath. Yes. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about, about the effect of how, how old were you and your brother? I it was, was in a dam, wasn't it? it? Yes, yeah, so I was 12 and there was, I have um, an older brother and then it was my next brother down and then my younger sister. But it had the most... I think the most shocking impact on my younger sister because my brother and I went back to boarding schools within a week of the accident and even that was isolating in itself. But there was my sister stuck at home with two broken, you know, grieving parents and it's just, you know, I still think about it now how ghastly that must have been for her, Mm. like really hard. 
And, and how are you, um, your relationships with your brother and sister, you know, through adulthood? Are you, you close? Oh, yeah, or? no, really close. And then sadly my parents were killed in a car accident. So apart from, you know, those, and it's, it's just that thing where I think people never quite understand how nothing, even though you've had one tragic thing in your life, nothing can save you from having something else terrible happen. Mm. Like life is just so, you know, capricious and cruel and joyful and wonderful that, um, you know, I just sort of, it, and the things that happen to you, of course, you know, affect you for the rest of your life as well. And, and, and your parents in a in a in a car. Yes. <laughs> Gosh, and and quite you were you were in your twenties. Yes, you? yes. So it was, um, yes, it's it was hard, and it was hard. I think, um, I don't know. I think because my children, um, I had two young children at the time. I had a third later. But I think it's that thing where you have to keep going. You just have to put, you know, one step in front of another. But, you know, I still, I used to speak to my mother, I think, almost every single day. And, you know, I still think about them all the time, even though it was years ago now. And I sort of wish that my children had, my children had no grandparents at all growing up. But then you have to sort of look and think, well, look, there are other great things in life. Um, you know, there are other wonderful relationships that they've had with other grown-up people. So, you know, you have to just take life as, you know, the cards that are dealt to you, really. Mm. I mean, you haven't, you haven't got any choice. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, that's I mean, the whole thing. Yeah. You don't have a choice. Thank you for sharing that. I, know, oh, I don't I know, know why I said those things. <laughs> well, no, I, I oh. really appreciate you being no, so, so open. <laughs> I didn't mean to make you cry. <laughs> no. Oh, God, it's terrible. In two minutes, I'm crying. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, we'll, we'll move on. I mean, I, I wish it was a slightly happier book because I was going to try to lighten the mood. Oh. But you've chosen my wife's favourite book, uh, A Fine Balance. Um, 1995, Rohinton Mystery. Wow. Well, uh, why did you choose that and what's the story behind that? Look, it is just the most um, brilliantly written, funny and sad, and, and it's called A Fine Balance, and I think the reason it's called that, I think there's a, a line in the book where it says that, you know, life is a balance between hope and despair, and I think this is what this book about. There's four main characters. It's set in India um, during 1975 under the reign of Indira, uh, um, Indira Gandhi. And what these people, these four people go through in their lives is so overwhelming and heartbreaking, yet it's just peppered with moments of just comedy and joy and it's just almost perfection. It's it's like a, a Charles Dickens of India, and it's it, it's a, a rollicking, moving, but ultimately really sad, really sad book. <laughs> I, I don't know how a a novelist can do this, but where you genuinely care for the people as if you knew them. I mean, you really care, like it's a, one and of I your know, friends. But or... it's it's what I was saying before. You think this is not fair. Mm. This you've been through enough. This is not fair. Yeah, but this is what life deals people. And, and do you think? Um, and I, so I'm drawing a long bow now. Which is probably uh, I shouldn't do. <laughs> uh, I mean, are are you attracted to sad stories? Do you think? And and that's led to your your no, not not sad really. bad. No, it's no, just... um, no. And I absolutely. Um, 
I love comedy. I think one of my favourite films was The Death of Stalin, which, you know, takes such a funny, I mean, such a, a momentous part of history and it is hilariously funny. So, and, um, no, I love comedy, really love it. And yeah. I, I love funny books. I, I love all sorts of literature. And I think that has been, you know, the great passion of my life is reading. Right. Like just, um, you know, I think for me, the my favourite moment of the day is getting into bed yes. and reading my book. And I, I cannot go to sleep unless I've I've read something. Now, we're going to uh, go back in time to the 1960s. You have chosen uh, uh, the song that, according to some people, is the most acclaimed song of all time. Oh, that so, makes me feel a bit cheap. N- well, they, oh, you're such a populist, <laughs> McClymouth. I know. <laughs> it's Like a Rolling Stone Don't. by Bob Dylan, 1965. Five. Okay. And I have always, um, I've always loved Bob Dylan, except I have walked out of um, ah. a Bob Dylan concert. Um, How often have you seen him? I've seen him twice and never again. Uh, why did you walk out? Well, when I got three quarters of the way through him singing Lay, Lady, Lay, and I suddenly recognised that was the croaky scrawl, he just butchered every song. And I feel sorry for artists because you think, imagine spending your whole life every night playing the same songs, trying to sing them with passion. But I also... um read his autobiography and I found that I really disliked him after ah. I read it. <laughs> and, 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 why, and why is that? Because there's a kind of a, a, a sneering distance about Bob Dylan and I think, you know, when he was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature, couldn't you have at least been just one tiny bit, gee, thanks so much, yes, I'll, I'll come along and get it, but no. No, he couldn't do that. But, okay, forget all that. Going back to Like a Rolling Stone, it is just so full of passion and vitriol and, you know, how does it feel? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, to be without a home, you know, I just think it's just one of the all-time, you know, great works of, um, you know, lyrical writing really. It's just so passionate. And, and, and an interesting sort of theme in terms of from from hero to zero. It's, yes, so yes. The, the, the backdrop of that. And if, if I can um, uh, use that to ask you uh, about some of the work that you do, where the people who are flying high, and then how does it feel you're now heading off to clink because you've been <laughs> done, yes. is um, tell me a, a bit about uh, sort of the lessons that you've learned from your your work, where you meet these people who, uh, until they've been rumbled, they are flying high and then, then, you know. The absolutely worst thing that happened, um, you know, as far as that goes, was that um, um, one of my colleagues and I were writing this, you know, major story about the law firm Keddies and their overcharging of, you know, vulnerable, injured clients. Anyway, so... Um, we'd spent weeks and weeks working on this and about two days before the story um, goes to air, I find out my new next-door neighbour is one of the partners of Keddie's. Ouch. So we write this story, my new neighbour moves in. As a result of my story, 
the firm goes down the gurgler, he is bankrupted, he loses his practicing certificate. I think he got it, he did get it back again. But sometime later, I was at um, a friend's child's 21st and the next door neighbor's daughter was there and she came up and just said to me, you ruined our lives. You really ruined our lives. And I said, look, I'm really sorry. She said, you're not sorry. And I said, actually, you know what? There are 115 law cases against your father's law firm. I know that this is a hard thing to hear, but sometimes people have to take responsibility for their own actions and they have to look behind who has delivered or who has exposed them. But it happens a lot is that you personally get the blame for what is really the revelation of somebody else's wrongdoing. And I think the very reason they've been able to do those things in the first place often is, you know, a form of, um, you know, they're a sociopath or a narcissist and they sleep really well at night even though they've destroyed other people. But when the tables are turned on them, they never look into themselves for their own bad behaviour. It's always your fault. Would you mind talking a little bit about how your work has affected you and your life view, if at all? Has it made you more cynical about the human race or less cynical or more hopeful? Or, or... No, I, I think that um, I am a perpetual optimist. I'm always looking that um, there's always good. It doesn't make me cynical. I just see it as, you know, the, the wide, um, you know, just the wide horizon of of human nature and it's populated by some very bad people. So, and I just think that, um, you know, I sort of feel quite blessed and in sometimes it's a little bit of a burden, but people contact you, you know, I would get at least five emails, calls a day from people saying, please, can you fix this for me? Please, can you fix, you know, what's happening to my, you know, father in an old people's home? I've been robbed by, you know, cryptocurrency um, experts. This new bridge is going to completely ruin our community. And I can't do it all. I, I just can't. And you sort of feel like, you know, I hate letting people down and I hate saying, I'm really sorry. But um, when they're particularly... Um, you know, absolutely crazy or mad, I always say, well, try so-and-so at the Daily Telegraph. <laughs> They'll help you. I'm interested, Kate. You get all these people who uh, contact you saying, could you investigate X, Y, or Z. How do you filter them out so that the crackpots to the things that actually is worth your valuable focus to investigate more? Well, for one, anyone who uses indiscriminate use of capitals, underlining or red writing, or <laughs> exclamation quotes, marks. Yes, or quotes um, any biblical reference <laughs> or any psalm in any way straight into the bin. Yeah. But no, usually you develop um, you develop a bit of an ear about what um, what sounds provable. The hardest things is when you get the anonymous um, emails or um, you know, people now contact you via encrypted means, you know, wicker and things like that. And what they are saying is absolutely sensational. But you know that if you're sued, you don't have that source to go back to because often you need, you need a paper trail, you need something, or you need someone 
to stand up in court. Every story I do now, I have to think, how am I going to prove this um, in court, which is such, you know, a, a terrible situation. But defamation is um, a, a really difficult thing that makes our professional lives hard to do. And I'm not saying that um, people don't have um, a right to sue if they feel suitably aggrieved. But for us, it's really difficult. Now, I'm going to flip this on its head <laughs> and I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to look for the silver lining. Have you ever had a tip-off and thought you were on a hot lead and investigated something and then found out that the woman or man was at, actually a saint and it was all slander, so you investigated and, and he or she wasn't dodgy? Yes. Excellent. Can, yes. Can, can, you, can you tell me more about that? Well, in fact, um, yeah, look, that has happened and often you will find that there is a motivation. There's, there's a motivation every single person that contacts you there is a reason behind it. And often for us, revenge is a fabulous reason because it motivates people to come forward. But they can be totally one-eyed, um, slightly crazy themselves, and they will give you, I won't go into, um, you know, who, who it's happened to because it's unfair to them. But when you look into it, you realise that, in fact, it's your informant mm. that is the one that really you know was was trying to deflect attention away to possibly the only good person in the story so yes that has happened So coming to your fourth choice, your place on Five in My Life, you've chosen Rushcutters Bay Park in Sydney. It is one of the most beautiful spots in Sydney. It's on the water. Um, it's, a, it's a little bay in between basically um, Elizabeth Bay and Double Bay. And I walk my dogs there most mornings. Every Sunday morning, I meet a group of friends. We have coffee um, and we gossip and chat, and we've been doing it for years. And it's also the place where I've got some of the best tip-offs of my life. <laughs> so, look, it's one of those things. The that package as, behind the tree? No, or? <laughs> well, no, but there, um, there is one of my favourite crimes took place down there oh. as well, which was um, this was many years ago when a major um a major cocaine um, conspiracy were using Qantas baggage handlers to bring in cocaine. And they met, they secretly met down at Rushcutters Bay. One of them had flipped and was wearing a wire. And there they were in the dark of night in Rushcutters Bay saying that um, they knew one of them had flipped. So there was this tension of they had internal police sources. This person was now working for the police. His life was in danger. Anyway, but apart from that, my other, my favourite tip was um, walking the dogs and I ran into um, to somebody who said, you should be looking at this firebombing in Wolseley Road in Point Piper. And I thought, Wolseley Road, Point Piper, you know, this is the richest street in the entire nation and there's a firebombing. And I ended up doing a story. 
the person who, it seems, did the firebombing was a guy called Michael McGurk. And 10 days after, um, you know, I, I spoke to him about all this, he was murdered and he told me in that conversation who was going to kill him. And I've just finished doing a book about this saga. Ah, right. But anyway, so Rush Cutters Bay, um, you know, you walk down there in the morning and the light coming off, you know, off the water and the sailboats and looking um, out to the harbour bridge and you just think life is a joy. It's just, it's beautiful. It's, um, I don't know, it's it's just one of the, you know, those things that make you feel great about life, just walking in the sunshine, looking at this, out across this beautiful vista that Sydney is and running into people that give you great tips. What could be better? <laughs> um, so people approach you uh, with tip-offs. Have there been any sort of deep throat, uh, secret clandestine uh, meetings where you have to wear a false moustache and a wig? Well, I haven't had to wear a false moustache, but I did have to meet somebody at midnight behind the stables of Randwick Racecourse <laughs> one time to get some um, information. And look... Um, that was that was back in 1995, and it was um, the jockey tape story, which was um, I got hold of some tapes which showed that major um, major leading Sydney jockeys were involved with um, uh, an organised crime figure, Victor Spink, and they were, you know, providing tips for races, and it looked like match fixing, and in fact, um, uh, Jim Cassidy got struck off for three years as a result of that. But I had another one where I had to, this was not so long ago. I'm I'm quite conscious of safety and I do make sure that I tell people where I'm going. But um when I was just telling you then about the um about those people involved in Rushcutters Bay in the cocaine conspiracy, the major conspirator once demanded to have a meeting with me. And it was at a pub called The Friend in Hand. <laughs> in Glebe. And I went and I met the, the, at the time he was referred to as the head honcho of organised crime. His name was Mikkel Hurley. He was wearing track suits and a flannelette shirt and, you know, downing schooners of beer. And I just thought to myself, like, you are one of the most terrifying people. And then it was after that that he got arrested right. for the um, the cocaine and I once had to go, sometimes I have to go and meet people and um, they they just say to you, um, I won't tell you what I look like, I will find you. But I always make sure that it's in, um, like in a public place. I won't go and meet people, you know, like when I went to the, <laughs> behind the stables at midnight, I think I must have been young and silly then, but um, I'm much more careful now. And I had one recently, it was a few years ago now, where... Um, a major crime figure was out of jail. And I'd last written about him 11 years earlier when I said that he was possibly the richest um, criminal in jail because he'd been importing um, drugs for almost 30 years and he'd been on the run for 30 years and police estimated he was worth, you know, $80 million. So he got out of jail and said, oh, could I meet up with you? I thought, no, but, I, you know, I always, I'm always very charming. I said, oh, of course you can. Where would you like to do it? And, and um, I, then I said, don't ask that. And I said, why don't you come to the canteen at my work? Because I thought we've got cameras, we've got security. 
So in comes this guy and he starts saying to me, um, so he said, you know, you just don't understand what it's like for me being a criminal because all the people I know, we're criminals. So when I was in jail, I had to get other criminals to mine my money. And now I'm going to have trouble getting it back. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, it's cheaper for them to knock me than it is for them to give the money back. And he said, most of it's in the Philippines. I went, oh, okay, right. Why is he telling you? I don't know. Um, Look, I've met him quite a few times. He was hilarious. He was, anyway, he goes to the Philippines and he's killed in a hit and run accident. So I never knew whether... Hit and run with air bunnies. Yes. So I know, but it's funny how, and people, even the criminals often say, I say, you know, why are you telling me these things? And they said, because what you wrote about me was fair and it was true. And... I just think if you if you behave ethically and you treat people, even criminals, with respect, as in if I say to them I won't write that particular thing or if they give me um, a piece of information that would endanger them, I would never breach that trust. And I just think it's important both professionally and it's also important as a human being that you know, people should be able to trust you, that you should be able to give your word and to keep that word. And I think that's something that I have tried to do throughout my career. I mean, sometimes I've had information that would be the best story, but I have promised that um, I would keep that to myself. Um, And I just sort of think, you know, I would never do what is known in the business as burning a source. I've never done that and I just would never, it doesn't matter how good the story is, I would never do that. Good on you. I I remember being at dinner, this is ages ago, uh, in in England with my wife, with quite a famous tabloid editor who, very charming and hilarious, but said there's only one rule, Nigel. It's first of all, simplify, then exaggerate. (laughs) Right, we are moving on to... uh, the fifth of five of my life choices, uh, your possession. Why have you chosen it and what's your story? I've chosen my transistor radio. It's a little black Sony radio that I have to move the aerial back and forward. Um, and they are basically un- indestructible. I've had, I've had it for years. But um, my love of the radio, I think, started from growing up on um, you know a property outside of Orange in the, the New South Wales' Central West. And during the school holidays, we all had to work. We had to, you know, do things on the farm. And one of the jobs I had during the summer breaks was um, we used to bale hay. So as soon as the dew was dry from the mown grass, my job was to drive along in a tractor and rake it into neat rose so then the baler would come along and it was literally sitting there for eight hours. So I used to listen to the radio. I think I've got poor hearing now, but um, and I used to listen to the cricket. I used to listen because in Orange we only had sort of two stations and now um, I, I cannot sleep at night unless I've got the BBC World Service in my ear. I have it on all night. I have a, a you know, a head thing. So it fall, when it falls out, it doesn't wake anyone up. But I, the radio to me is the most wonderful source of, of information and interesting things and conversation. And it 
provides you with, you know, such an interesting outlook on life and seeing what's happening overseas and switching channels or rolling that little dial round. It's, yeah, I love it. And, and I love the transference of affection and meaning. So you like the content but it comes through that piece of plastic. Yes. So you feel, it's a bit, it's a bit like, I'm not calling you a pervert here, but a bit like a fetish, someone explained to me once, is if you um, like, uh, in a classic heterosexual sense, if you like a woman in a red high heels, and then it transfers to you just like the red high heels, and you can leave, <laughs> you can, <laughs> there needn't be a woman in it. right? So, so you, I imagine when you look at your transistor radio, you feel affection towards it, even if it's not turned on yet, because that is the thing that you associate with all the wonderful stories that you get through yes, it. Yes, because I remember my father always saying, shush, shush, for the weather. Like it was absolutely, you know, crucial in, you know, life in the country was listening to, the, you know, the weather report. And even now, you know, just some of those, um, the theme songs, even the theme songs from, you know, the ABC Radio News, um, you know, I had a dog that every time the radio news would come on would howl, but he's now deaf, so he can't hear it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's been such a delight to uh, to chat to you, and you have been really generous and and authentic. And, and I, I can't tell you how much I admire what you do. It must be a very uh, sometimes lonely, uh, unforgiving role to have because you will, you know, provoke different reactions from people, but you are loved for what you do. Well, so. Nigel, that is very kind of you to say so. Um, yes, I think I often suffer from imposter syndrome. You just do your job as best you can. And when people stop you and say, you know, you're really brave or, you know, I really admire you, I'm so grateful and touched, but I sort of feel non-deserving. But one of my greatest fears is that people are sending me information, that, hoping that I will just publish it without checking. Ah, uh, and to, yeah, I'm just—I'm right. paranoid about that. Yeah. Um, what would be your recommendation for who you would like me to interview next, so that you could hear on Five of My Life, and why? I would really like you to interview um, Virginia Bell who is one of the um, eminent judges on our high court. And um, she used to work in a, a previous life. I think she was once a barrel girl and she worked for Redfern Legal Centre and she's really funny. Wonderful. What a great recommendation. Kate, thank you so much for coming My on Five pleasure. My Pleasure. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. 